You're listening to a podcast appearing on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Resistance training. Is it good for young athletes? What about some things we hear a lot about? Max lifts, stunting growth, that kids don't benefit from strength training until puberty. Last month, in June of 2020, the American Academy of Pediatrics released a revision to their 2008 policy statement with a new clinical report on resistance training for children and adolescents. Today on the podcast, I'll be joined by the lead authors of this report to discuss what's new in the revision and helping us all understand the latest recommendations in the world of pediatric resistance training. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, I'm joined by two of the three lead authors to the AAP Clinical Report on Resistance Training. My first guest is Dr. Paul Stricker. He is a pediatric sports medicine physician who completed his pediatric training at Arkansas Children's Hospital, followed by his sports medicine fellowship at UCLA. He is a past president of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and currently is an elected member of the Executive Committee for the American Academy of Pediatrics, Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness. He has served as a team physician for many U.S. national teams, including being a physician for the U.S. team at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. He has spoken extensively around the country and has been featured on many local and national TV and news programs on the topics of youth sports and preventative health. He is a former All-American swimmer and currently practices at Scripps Clinic in San Diego, and I always enjoy talking to him about his aeroponic tower gardens. Avery Fagenbaum is a professor in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at the College of New Jersey. He is an internationally recognized leader in the field of pediatric exercise science, with a special emphasis on youth resistance training and preventative medicine. He has co-authored over 250 scholarly articles, 50 book chapters, and 10 books, including Essentials of Youth Fitness. He has delivered more than 300 invited lectures in 12 countries. He is a consultant to the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness and is a fellow of the National Strength and Conditioning Association and of the American College of Sports Medicine. He is actually one of my favorite people to hear speak, and I will be sure to bring him back to talk more specifically later in another podcast on exercise deficit disorder. Welcome to the podcast, Paul and Avery. Thank you. Thank you so much. First off, I actually want to acknowledge Dr. Terry McCambridge, who is also one of the co-lead authors on this clinical report. She was unfortunately unable to join us today, but was an important part of this report. We're sad to not have her with us today, but she felt that we will be in good hands talking with Avery and Paul about this report today. I'm really glad that this update happened. As I read through it, I know I picked up on some new things that either I had either overlooked in the past or some newer concepts in this area. I think it's best to start off by actually defining what exactly is resistance training. Well, I think I'll start off with that definition of resistance training as a method of conditioning that includes a variety of exercises and a range of resistive loads. So when you think about resistance training, I think it's important that we have this wide view of what it really is. It could be a bodyweight exercise or a method of conditioning designed to increase strength and power or a mode of training used by high-level young athletes. Let's distinguish resistance training as a form of exercise or method of conditioning from some of the competitive sports, such as weightlifting or bodybuilding or powerlifting, that perhaps we will uh, talk about. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on those because I think it's important to make the distinction between each of those concepts. We all know that there are some significant benefits to resistance training. Can you explain some of them and why it's so important to have this as a component of being a young athlete? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so fun too on that 
first question. We, are, we always think about what resistance training is, but sometimes we like to have people think about what it's not because so many people immediately go to, it's just lifting barbells and dumbbells and that's it. And they don't realize that there's so many different ways that kids can increase that load on the muscles and get that adaptive response. Then when we think of it for athletes, it's just one piece of a wonderful training puzzle for athletes because they need certainly to work on technique and get their rest and be hydrated and get nutrition and all those things. And on top of that, it's great that we know that resistance training has been shown to create other benefits that are not just for athletes' performance. So, you know, increased strength and increased bone density, helping with lipid profiles and body composition for overweight athletes, injury rehab and reduction, fitness, development of motor skills, and of course, performance, including speed and power. And if we look at it from a different standpoint, I love to think about one of the other benefits is actual reduction of the adverse effects of injuries from a lack of adequate strength to keep up with training loads. I think that's an important one. And I think we can probably talk about that a little bit more later. You know, I see in my clinic too often the kids that come in who are training for a sport and they just assume that participation in their sport is going to make them strong. And they wonder when we start talking to them about their strength deficits that we find on their physical exam and how that contributes to their problem or their pain or their overuse injury. And then they're floored by the fact that we're talking about that they actually are weak and not realizing that resistance training is an important component of that. Sure. That's certainly an an, an important point because a prerequisite level of strength for any boy or girl is needed to jump, hop, kick, throw, or catch proficiently. And perhaps what you are both seeing in your offices is nowadays boys and girls who are weaker than previous generations. And there have been several secular trends of muscular strength published within the last few years that have shown that this generation of boys and girls are indeed uh, weaker and slower than previous generations. If a prerequisite level of strength is needed, and if there's that synergistic relationship between muscle strength and, as Paul alluded to, fundamental movement skills, they both work together to prepare boys and girls for sport. And my message to young athletes is that you cannot simply play yourself into sport, that a level of condition is needed prior to sports participation to increase performance and reduce that risk of injury. Avery, touch on that a little bit more. And I I love hearing you talk about this in the standpoint of you mentioned that we are worse off in this generation from strength than we were in previous generations. And I I think that floors people when they think about that concept, just in the fact that, wow, we have all this sports specialization. We've got specialized coaches that take care of athletes and they're doing all this stuff. They're doing quicker, faster uh, speed training type stuff. Why are we actually worse than we were previous generations? Yeah, well, that's sort of a hot topic right now. And indeed, there are many boys and girls who are really strong and perhaps in in your programs and in my programs. But overall, as you look at the epidemiological data, um, and it's not just American kids, it's boys and girls around the world. As you look at measures of some field measures, for example, the long jump, the push up, the curl up, the pull up over the past 10, 20, 30, 40 years. In boys and girls, there's been a decline, not in all countries, but in most countries. So what's driving this? Oh, many factors, a lack of physical education in our schools, a lack of outdoor play, a lack of a focus on on activities such as uh, a resistance training, too much focus on accumulating 60 minutes of MBPA without really targeting those strength deficits. 
This has reached a point now where my colleagues and I actually use the term pediatric dynapenia to describe this treatable condition in boys and girls characterized by a loss of muscle strength. Typically, when you hear that word dynapenia, you think of someone in their 70s or 80s who has difficulty walking up a flight of stairs or getting out of a chair. But we're starting to use that term in boys and girls, as you just alluded to in your own sports medicine clinic, of seeing boys and girls who are not prepared for the demands of sports practice and competition. When we talk about performing resistance training, I I get asked by patients, how long does it take to make progress? It's often discussed we can lose that strength quicker than it takes to build things up. Is that a true statement? And what should we be talking about to patients about with expectations for their training? I think a lot of it, we approach it from the standpoint of an adult and how we feel if we have a period of you know, we try to work out and then when we don't train, it goes away so fast. And in some cases, when we look at kids, yes, it, they can start to make some gains even after eight weeks when they're working out three times a week in a, a resistance training program. But technically, you know, you need five or six months to really have these effective programs. And yet, despite that, detraining can start to occur within the first two to three months. Now, I think when we think about kids, you know, that's a little bit different because there's that whole complexity of the changes that are occurring with them, with their dynamic growth, their accumulation of testosterone and other things as they learn more motor skills. So some of their benefits may not decrease uh, so much or so quickly as some of us feel if we don't get to work out for a while. Yeah, as Paul just said, those gains can be quite observable within the first few weeks. In an untrained child, it's not uncommon to see uh, gains of, let's say, 30 or 40% within the first two to three months. But additional time is needed to see those gains in some performance measures. But the interesting question of detraining comes up all the time. You know, what happens when you stop? And, and as Paul just said, it's, it's really a complex and very interesting issue to study. Unlike you and me, when we stop, we get weaker. You have the influence of growth and maturation. And in our own research studies, we have found that when children stop, the training-induced gains in strength do tend to regress towards the untrained values. However, the design of the program influences that rate of loss. If the program is rather simple in design with simple exercises, children tend to lose strength quicker. However, if the program is integrative in nature and includes more complex exercises along with some plyometric exercises, they tend to hold on to that strength and power longer. But in any case, the important message is that during the season, boys and girls need to continue some type of maintenance training program to preserve those training units gains in strength and power. I think that's important talking about that in terms of expectations for our patients too, for the ones that we're seeing in clinic. We get kids come in, how long is it going to take me to get better from this? When am I going to start to see a difference? When can I get back to sports? How am I going to get stronger, quicker? And I think it's important to set the table ahead of time and let them know it is going to take a while, but if we keep being committed to it, it, it's going to pay some big dividends on the back end. Resistance training is a lifetime activity. I tell the boys and girls in our program, when you graduate middle school or high school, that's not a time to stop. This is a form of an exercise that you can perform for life. So what we're really teaching the boys and girls in our primary school and middle school programs, this is a mode of training or a mode of exercise or a mode of conditioning that boys and girls can do forever. You know, I really love the table that you guys put in this clinical report. Uh, It's actually, I think it's kind of unique because I don't remember seeing clinical reports where there was a table talking about misconceptions, but I I think it's really valuable, especially for a pediatrician, for all these questions and topics that likely come up in their office. I think it's, I'd like to go through uh, kind of each of them there and you can kind of expand on each of these statements here. The first one I alluded to was in the introduction, a child is unable to gain strength before puberty. What about that one? (laughs) 
goes back a long time, I think, where people just thought, hey, they don't have testosterone or those pubertal hormones, so how could they possibly get stronger? And yet when we try to explain it, I mean, I'm, I'm doing kind of little visuals with parents all the time and say, look, you know, if you pick up that pencil, you have just neurologically recruited a few fibers of your muscle to work to lift up that pencil. But if you're going to pick up that heavy weight, you have to recruit more of those muscle fibers. And that's exactly how a pre-pubertal child can finally gain strength without necessarily getting bigger muscles, which needs testosterone for that to happen. How about concerns for getting muscle bound? Should we be worried that every kid is going to turn out and look like little Hercules? I hear that as an excuse often for not having girls do resistance training. There's a word they're going to gain too much muscle. This one is of concern. It's been around so long, I call it a zombie myth because it just won't quit. And <laughs> unfortunately, it really does keep uh, adolescent girls out of the weight room. And we have to spend uh, some great effort on educating coaches, teachers, and parents that this truly is a myth. Um, look at some of the, uh, the greatest female athletes in the world, whether they be a gymnast or a sprinter or a volleyball player or a basketball player. They all resistance train, but they're not muscle bound. Resistance training for a boy or a girl performed with correct technique through the full range of motion will not make you a muscle bound. Just look at a gymnast or a martial artist or a sprinter. I think those are good analogies there. What about if I were to resistance train for an activity that's primarily an aerobic exercise, say like a cross country runner or a soccer player? Is that going to hinder that young athlete's performance? Well, I, I definitely with uh, Avery's research background, I want to hear more of his input too. But, I, you know, I love to tell kids that, hey, there's studies that show that if you combine aerobics with resistance training, that you're able to actually get improvements in performance. And and I also love to kind of point out, I guess, with those athletes, especially like cross-country runners, you know, they, they feel it's so important for them, for their body to be lightweight so that they can run those long distances. But we talk about it when they're in my office because they're usually in there because of something like a stress fracture. And I talk about, hey, you know, do you realize that you don't have to be big, but if your muscles are stronger, they work as wonderful shock absorbers from that impact to take some of that force away from the bone. And and it just kind of helps paint that picture for them that, you know, strength isn't a bad thing. You know, it's not something that's going to hinder their performance. And I'd love to hear what Avery has to say. I'll answer this question as, as a former high school cross-country runner who, who strength trained. The design of a resistance training program for high school cross-country runners looks quite different from a program for high school football players. The goal of the program is different. The sets, the reps, the training load, it's different. Can resistance training benefit a high school cross-country runner? Sure, that's what the research says. We can increase speed. We can, we can improve running economy and reduce the risk of injury. The program looks different. We might not be doing those heavy loads, but we could do planks and back extensions and lunges and squats with dumbbells. So in short, strength training can benefit those so-called aerobic type sports, such as cross-country running, but the design of that program is quite different. Here's another common one, and we see this crossover into certain sports as well, like gymnastics. Resistance training may stunt a child's growth. Everybody's so worried that their kid is going to turn out short. I turned out short and I still think I did okay. <laughs> um, you know, well, it, it's funny because again, I don't know where along history the people thought that if they lifted weights, it would, you know, stunt their growth or close their growth plates early. Obviously, we've never seen any study that has documented that kind of thing and it has not affected linear growth and those kinds of things. I think when we look at overall 
calorie expenditure versus intake in a child that's training super heavily in their sport and in resistance training and in whatever other kind of things they're doing, you know, then you get into an issue of where does that calorie deficit play a role in their growth? But certainly there's no concern from a resistance training standpoint. And I would add to that that resistance training at the, with the right loads has been shown to improve bone mineral density. So it, it's not going to make a boy or girl taller, and it's certainly not going to stunt their growth, but actually may improve their bone mineral density, which, which is a positive outcome of this type of training. Yeah, absolutely. We touched on this one a little bit already, but certainly you can add some of this. So youth sports has continued to grow. Kids are playing year-round. Our kids today are much stronger than previous generations. If you look at the global reports on youth physical activity, and again, it's not just the American kids, it's boys and girls around the world, only about 80% accumulate this the, the recommendations of at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a day. So that's where I'll start my answer. As we look a little deeper into the measures of strength and power, in most countries, we're going to we see a decrease in measures of muscular fitness. So it's fair to say that this generation of boys and girls are not as strong as previous generations. And there are many factors that, that influence these trends over the past 10, 20, 30 years. And the last one was an interesting one because this was a change from the previous, actually, policy statement. Now it's a clinical report. Kids being encouraged to do one maximum lift, harmful or not. We used to say harmful. And part of that was because there was so much unclarity about how it was done and you know, these kids were just going to go and try to just hoss up some big, huge weight and hurt themselves. But just like resistance training in general, we always stress every single time I've ever been involved in these papers is that, you know, resistance training can increase strength as long as there's great technique and proper supervision. And those are criteria that even are necessary for rep max lifts. So it's been shown that they can be safe and it's a great way to assess muscular strength, but it has to be with good supervision and appropriate guidelines that need to be followed. And I think the neat thing is, is if a coach or a, a parent or somebody is unsure if that situation exists and it's going to be safe, you know, it's nice for them to know that there are also alternative tests that correlate well with a one rep max. Yeah, this was, as you said, Mark, a, a, a change in our 2020 paper versus previous versions of this paper from the Academy. And, uh, you know, as Paul just alluded to, one-arm testing can be performed by pediatric researchers, qualified youth professionals, and, and others to assess maximum strength, determine appropriate training loads, and really evaluate the effectiveness of that program. But we need to answer that question in the appropriate context. And you'll hear this a lot today. You know, one-arm testing is safe if qualified professionals administer that test, if an appropriate warm-up is done, if the focus is on proper form and technique. There's a lot of ifs there, but that's really what we're talking about today. We're not talking about unsupervised training, testing children who don't have experience performing a bench press or squat or deadlift. And as Paul just alluded to, you know, would it be appropriate for a phys ed teacher to do a one-arm test with 30 children in class? Of course not. And the same can be said for a pediatrician's office. So what are some other measures that could be done? You could do a hand grip in a pediatrician's office. You could do a long jump in physical education class. So there are some other surrogate measures that can be done. But in this paper, if we looked at the data and we said that in certain situations, one-arm testing can be done to aid in the design of the program and for me as a researcher to evaluate the effectiveness of a program. And there is no data, no data, which has found that one-arm testing, if performed with qualified instruction and when an appropriate progression of training loads, is riskier than other modes of testing. 
we put it as an okay with a little maybe kind of a tiny asterisk that there are some conditions here as far as that it needs to be performed in, as we should. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion on resistance training for children and adolescents. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We're back, and I have with me today Dr. Avery Fagenbaum and Dr. Paul Stricker, who were two of the three lead authors of the AAP's recent revision to the clinical report on resistance training for children and adolescents. We've been talking about some of the benefits and some myths associated with resistance training. Let's talk a little bit about some of the potential risks. As with anything in sports, extremes are not good. Inactivity, overtraining on both ends of the spectrum. How does that come into play with resistance training? Well, it plays a role in both, and I always love to kind of look at the two sides of the coin, and And we certainly think that if a child is in between seasons and they've been inactive and they go back to their sports too quickly, that sure, there's a, a risk of injury from that. But then on the flip side, if they do resistance training, it can help benefit them to regain some of the loss of muscular strength and fitness from being sedentary. And same thing with overtraining. Overtraining actually can occur from too much overload from a resistance program that's advanced too quickly or without enough recovery, especially if the resistance training is not accounted for in their overall training volume. Yet on the flip side, it can also help improve muscle imbalances that account for many of the overuse injuries that we see. So uh, there's just lots of wonderful ways to look about how this can fit in, but yet like everything else, moderation, we don't want people doing too much of any activity or it's always gonna increase their risk of an injury. I'd like to consider some risk factors that are associated with risk. As you mentioned, all types of physical activity have some degree of risk. But when we look specifically at resistance training, what are those risk factors that we need to be aware of? Poor supervision or unqualified supervision, number one, an inappropriate progression of training loads. And along with that inappropriate progression of training loads, and Paul just alluded to this, boys and girls can train heavy sometimes, but not all the time. I mean, that falls under that category of inappropriate progression of training loads. And the next one is that storage of equipment. I know this sounds simple, but when you look at some of the injury data of boys and girls reporting to the emergency room, now we need to be a little careful because we don't know where those accidents happen. 
happened. It was to the hand and the foot. That is someone lifting up a dumbbell that was a little too heavy and dropped it on their foot or put their fingers on some moving parts that perhaps they shouldn't have been touching. So these are, I think, risk factors we all need to be aware of. But when you look at the data, the data will say that the risks of resistance training are lower. The risk of injury is actually lower than other sports that boys and girls participate in. Avery, you bring up a good point there as far as injuries go. We do have data on it. It's mostly what we see in the ER where you would expect, you know, if someone's going to an ER from a a weightlifting injury, it's probably not because of the actual weightlifting itself. We would expect hands and and feet. It's like people dropping weights on those things or doing things inappropriately. Do we have any good data outside of the ER setting to say that it's not that big of a deal? If you look at all of the prospective research studies, first of all, there's never been a growth plate fracture in any prospective youth resistance training research study. But when you look at the youth resistance training research studies, we have some assumptions here. The studies were appropriately supervised. Their pro- the studies, their program design was, was sensibly progressed. And as you look at that injury data, which we did, the injuries are minor. The injuries are minor, but it all comes back to the supervision. You know, have there been serious injuries? Yes, but it's a child exercising in the basement of their home unsupervised or a child at a fitness center unsupervised. But when you look at the prospective research studies, the risk of injury is small. We felt that was very important to put into the clinical report was just that, you know, the the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System is very robust, but sometimes the clarity of where those injuries come from as they approach the emergency room is not specified. So it may fall under the lump of weightlifting injuries, but like Avery said, it, it's more likely that that's from a kid competing with his best friend in the basement on their dad's equipment, you know, all that kind of thing that it doesn't really define that. So we want people to just be very clear when they're looking at any of that kind of information so they can kind of discern, hey, This type of injury data that we're talking about is very specific that these programs need the good supervision and the injury rate is extremely low, but the benefits are great. We know that there are some things medically pre-existing conditions, so to speak, that may give us pause before starting resistance training. Some of those may be relative contraindications. Some may be absolute contraindications. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Yeah. I mean, some of the relative ones that would need kind of clearance first, pre-existing hypertension, Uncontrolled seizure disorders, certainly kids are fine if they have very controlled seizure disorders, but they need to be cleared first if it's uncontrolled. And then another interesting one that is usually somewhat of a surprise to some people is just previous childhood cancers that have been treated with anthracycline chemotherapy. Those are really just small amount of research, but was profound enough to help us always put that in the paper to remind people that just check if any kid has had a childhood cancer that they, they need to get that cleared. Also, the more absolute kind of disqualifications would be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, things like pulmonary hypertension, and of course, Marfan syndrome because of the risk of aortic dilatation. We had talked a little bit about this earlier where we were going to kind of hash out the difference in definitions of things. We talked about resistance training, but some may really get into it, start things such as competitive weightlifting or competitive bodybuilding that also can bring in concerns about the use of performance enhancing substances. Can one of you talk about the differences between the competitive weightlifting and bodybuilding and how that's different from resistance training and maybe some concerns there? And then maybe one of you talk about what should a healthcare provider need to think about, have on their radar for performance enhancing substances use and abuse. We, we started off today talking about the, defining resistance training as a method of conditioning that uses different exercises and a range of resistive loads. As we talk about the other terms, weightlifting is a competitive sport that involves the clean and jerk and the snatch. 
powerlifting is a competitive sport that involves heavy lifting in the squat, the bench press, and deadlift. And bodybuilding, of course, is another competitive sport where the goal is not muscle strength, rather muscle size and symmetry. Can children and adolescents perform the same exercises that these athletes perform? The, the answer is yes. You know, in a youth resistance training program, that may include bodyweight exercises, that may include a squat exercise, that may include a bench press exercise, which these athletes do. But the goal of the programs are quite different. Weightlifting, bodybuilding, and powerlifting are indeed competitive sports. Now, over time, some boys and girls might become interested in those sports, and we have some really good American weightlifters, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. But the overarching goal of our youth resistance training program, as outlined in our article, focuses more on resistance training as a method of conditioning to enhance health and fitness. Right. And Avery, I, I think another thing that you helped us really add to this paper was that we had always been so kind of confined to that box that weightlifting activities is just wrong for young kids. And, and yet, now that clarity of you know being able to do weightlifting movements with just a, a dowel bar or a you know broomstick handle or things to where they can not only get some of that dynamic stability and get some of those motor skill developments going, but also be able to learn the technique without that kind of fear. So I think that was just another area that that we were able to enhance the paper. And then you know just from the healthcare professional standpoint, if you're Performance enhancing substances doesn't always mean anabolic steroids. You know, it could be some sort of uh, excessive stimulant. And so you're looking for things that are dramatic, like significant increases in muscle size or a significant weight loss. If they're using excessive stimulants, personality changes, changes in school performance, things that you would kind of even look for with any other kind of uh, substance abuse. You know, Paul, you bring up a good point that's, I think, worth emphasizing on this podcast because it's new information in this paper, and that relates to the idea of weightlifting movements. Again, the sport of weightlifting involves two lifts, the clean and jerk and the snatch. There are movements called weightlifting derivatives, which are parts of those lifts. And unlike a, a muscle group exercise, like a bicep curl or a tricep kickback, when we teach children weightlifting movements, they're using literally a wooden dowel and then progressing to an unloaded barbell. And we're teaching their body to function as a unit. Sometimes parents will observe our programs and they will ask, well, what sport are you training that child for? Or what muscle group is being used? And my answer is, all muscle groups are activated during a weightlifting exercise. And we're preparing, we're making this young boy or girl stronger for all sports and activities. So I think we really need to have a, a different view of these weightlifting movements that by default must be taught day one with a wooden dowel and then gradually progressed over time. They've become, as you look at the research within the last five years or so, a really important component of youth development programs. You know, I love this concept that you guys brought up in this clinical report called the training age. I, I really like this as a way of trying to explain to people and also really important for coaches, strength and conditioning coaches in particular, how to think about where to start with an individual. Uh, help our listeners a little bit understand this concept of training age. Training age, by definition, refers to the, the cumulative amount of training in a structured training program. It's sort of distinct from active play and free time. That's important. But training age, how many years of training has the child participated in a structured resistance training program? In the past, the design of resistance training program was based almost entirely on a child's chronological age. But for example, there's a 10-year-old girl in my program, and she's been with us for two years. So her resistance training age is two. She's been with us for two years. So she will do a more advanced program with more complex exercises, 
as compared to a 14-year-old boy who just walks in the door. His training age is zero. So there are many factors to consider when designing a resistance training program, but training age refers to their, their training experience. So training age is intimately linked to one's resistance training skill competency. So that 10-year-old girl I mentioned earlier, her resistance training skill competency will be at such a level, she will be allowed to use heavier loads. She will be allowed to perform more complex exercises. I think we need to be careful when we only use chronological age. We have to use, we have to consider one's training age as well. And for me, I love that this was my favorite addition to the paper. <laughs> I think this is just the a real revolutionary thing for people to be able to see because it, it, it all kids do not fall in that same cookie cutter box. And we all know that we've experienced that our whole careers. And yet this is a time when we have finally spelled it out in paper and be able to, to show people that yes, that accumulating that time really is valuable. And then that it's not just the accumulative time, but it's how much weight have they been lifting, you know, over time, how, what's the quality of how they're doing their lifting movements, how is their emotional maturity. So all of those things put together can really help more, I think, uniquely and individually guide the progression of these technique-driven programs rather than just relying on chronological age, which is clearly something that we know is a drastic variation. Even when we look at just kids going through puberty, you know, we say, we know that you can have a 13-year-old still hasn't shaved and is still, you know, super small. And you have a 13-year-old who's already, you know, been shaving for two years and is already uh, looks like a, a young he-man. So chronological age is something that we have to really get away from, I think, in a lot of these areas. Yeah, I really love this concept. I think of it in terms of, and it was a way I, how I can use this with my patients and kind of explaining them the whole concept I talked about before is that they're weak and this is why they're having troubles is, you know, they may have been a soccer player for five years. So their soccer age, so to speak, is five, but the resistance age, age, training age is zero because they haven't done any resistance training and they're still totally a rookie in that kind of <laughs> standpoint there. So it is like they're starting a new sport, so to speak. I, I hope that may be something that, you know, patients can get a little better concept with. I like to tell parents that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build their strength reserve. And we mentioned this in the paper as well. It's strength that the young boys and girls can have that they may or may not need when they're on the playing field. It's like money in the bank that for the 10-year-old girl who's been with us for two years, I've built up her strength reserve to a point that when she's playing field hockey or soccer or lacrosse, not only has her performance improved, but she has a strength reserve that's so high that when she's asked to perform an awkward movement or when she is uh, performing a more complex skill or when she's placed in a position which increases a risk of injury, she can rely on that strength reserve to hopefully stay out of your office. I think, Mark, I think that's the goal, right? We want Absolutely. to stay out of your office. And and that's um and that's what we're talking about. So as we build their training aid, we're really building their strength reserve. Unlike the patient you mentioned earlier, who has been playing soccer for five years, but has a training age of zero. Okay. So that, that one could argue that young athlete's strength reserve is quite low. And that young athlete would be at an increased risk of injury. At the point of the podcast where we kind of summarize things, I have a feature that we call the pearl of the podcast. So it's the final words of wisdom, some take-home points from each of you. You can each give us a pearl or pearls about resistance training, and I'll, I'll start with you, Paul. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much, Mark, for having us on the podcast. It's a, it's a real honor. And, you know, with people being interested not only in sports performance, but also the general health of kids, I just want to encourage parents and coaches and healthcare professionals to really see that resistance training that is properly done, see it more 
of less of a risk and more of a benefit. I think we've made such a switch from defending it from a standpoint of risk of doing resistance training to now emphasizing the risks of not doing resistance training, which I really hope will inspire many people to use it for general and fitness, injury reduction, uh, in addition to sports performance and training. So that's my pearl. Avery, your pearl or pearls? Again, Mark, thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, I, I just want to thank uh, Paul and Terry and the entire uh, Committee on Sports Medicine and Fitness for, through the AAP for the invitation to be part of this paper. You know, it's been a 30-year journey for me researching and writing this, and I'm really proud to be part of this one. What, what's my pearl? Uh, I think it's not just about accumulating 60 minutes of MBPA anymore. We really need to recognize muscular strength as foundational for ongoing participation in exercise and sport. And since a prerequisite level of strength is needed to jump, hop, kick, throw, and catch, I think of strength as the glue that literally holds movement together. Fantastic, guys. Thank you so much to Dr. Stricker, Dr. Fagenbaum for their time today and helping us walk through all the new clinical report from the American Academy of Pediatrics on resistance training in children and adolescents. We will have a link to that document in our show notes so you can see it in its entirety. Please be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook or through Twitter at Peds Sports Pod, and that's S is after peed and sports. So peds, sports, plural. We love your feedback and be sure to subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast streaming service to get the latest episodes. Also be sure to check out our other podcast, the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, where we cover topics that parents, coaches, and athletes frequently ask us about in the world of youth and high school sports. Thanks for joining us today. I am Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.